back to a mix of history and short shows, which means we're back to quick intros on the smaller episodes. It looks like I'm finally going to pull together that shorts discussion with some of my old Peace Corps buddies this week, and if I don't have Vietnam 2 out by Monday, I'm maybe 50-50 on that, but I think it should be out in two weeks if not in one, then I'll have the discussion for you next week. Big thanks to Jeff, the second poli-sci graduate student, to reach out to me, and our newest supporter on Patreon. Share the show, folks. Share, share, share the shows, and rate them on iTunes. All right, we're talking about pernicious, dangerous political cynicism. I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on stag and skip out for beer. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America which again stains our land. And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal to defeat American power. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. Politics has a bad rap here in the United States for some good and some less good reasons. Let's talk about what the word actually means for a minute, though, before we get into the body of the show. Aristotle once called politics the greatest of all sciences, and I think that he's right. Because while physics and chemistry might launch a rocket into space, while biology and agronomy might feed the world, while engineering might devise the physical structures of our civilization, physicists, chemists, biologists, agronomists, and engineers are people and politics moves and deals and builds with people. I think there are two fundamental and fundamentally opposed ways to think about what politics actually is. The first is the use of power, in whatever form, to bend other people to your will. It's the subordination of many wills to one, whether with weapons or threats or religion or any other given method or institution. The second way to think about politics, I think, is as the only thing that raises us together up out of the mud and saves us from a Hobbesian state of nature, a war of all against all, 
the one that in that famous phrase would make our lives nasty, brutish, and short. It is, rather than the dominion of one will, the processes of consensus that allow us to live together with all of our competing interests in a mutually beneficial way. I think that these two conceptions exist at the opposite ends of a spectrum. We love spectrums here on SFD. And that any real case of politics in the world is a mix of the two. All but the most tyrannical despots have had to take more than their own will into account. And even if the group they're concerned with is small, a dictator almost can't avoid creating institutions and bringing some degree of ordered cohabitation among their people. Saddam Hussein was awful, a monster, and minority groups like the Kurds definitely did not fall within his circle of considered stakeholders. But the state functioned, or at least functioned better than what came afterwards. Likewise, naked force is on display in all organized groups, no matter their size or their orientation. Whether that's me ramming a vote through in a committee with sheer numbers rather than argument, Democratic Athens putting Socrates unjustly to death, or Occupy Wall Street protesters discovering that all of the powers of a just political consensus can't ward off the violent and unsympathetic agents of the state. Within those two overlapping spheres of political conception, or along that spectrum, it seems to me that there are a class of actions that one can use to accrue or exert political power. Apologies here now, I've got the insomnia as bad or worse than my dad does, and I spent a good two hours last night staring at the ceiling trying to really do this right in a philosophy sense, trying to move from first premises about politics through logical steps to where I eventually will end up. A few different times it seemed like I'd really built something impregnable, but I never quite got there. Point being that I'm going to continue laying out these categories, and I just want you to recognize that I know they're not perfect, and that there will be exceptions to all of them. Anyway, it seems to me that these actions that lay along this spectrum range from easy to undertake to difficult, and that those actions which are easy are more effective more quickly, over and against those which are hard. Likewise, that those actions which are easy are undesirable, in that they are destructive, versus those which are hard, which can be, and usually are, constructive. That's all very abstract, so let's see some real-world examples. Really, all instances of men moving other men constitute politics, no matter how few men they are, so we can start pretty small here. Consider two situations we've all seen go down way too many times to bear. A cop confronts an armed man. In one situation, the man is black. In the other, he's white. For even a very brief moment, these men are in a political situation. For the cop, how can he remove the gun from the other man's hand, or a car? For the other man, how can he either retain or surrender his gun without harm to himself? For all these men, the easiest answer, the easiest solution to the political puzzle is both simple and uniform. Shoot the other guy first. A gun in the hand is a kind of power, and its most naked use is to shoot. We've seen that while neither of the unarmed men, historically, is in the majority inclined to shoot the cop, cops are inclined to shoot black men with guns. And let me say here, I also understand that some or most of cops shooting black men are shooting them unarmed. But let's imagine that this is something like what happened to Philando Castile, who had a legal firearm in his car and who was shot without ever having laid hands on that gun. Now, the response in the case of a cop shooting an unaggressive and unthreatening black man with a gun in his vicinity is easy, and it is incredibly effective. The cop comes out alive, which is part of his formula, and the man is definitively unarmed, which finishes his answer to the puzzle. But we can see the negative effects, the destructive consequences of the action. One man is dead. Another man will be investigated. 
A community loses its faith in its police, and a police force makes itself even more fearful of the community that it ostensibly protects. One individual choice to take the easiest way out of a political quandary ripples outward, tearing down institutions and goodwill in its wake. Now, consider the cop and the armed white man. As we've seen in a million videos, or as you could see if you look them up on YouTube, the cop talks to the man. They hash out gun rights and open carry regulations, and after a conversation, either the man goes on his way or the cop temporarily relieves him of his weapon. Nobody dies. Considering our gun laws, probably nobody even goes to jail. Both men are left with greater faith in their two respective communities. One act of understanding builds outwards. As far as relative strengths, it's nearly always the case that the black man wants to take the second route, the one afforded to the white gunman. But the painstaking process of negotiating that second route is demonstrably slower, more difficult, and necessarily less effective than just shooting first. So let's scale this up now. I've been reading George Kennan's American Diplomacy recently. Kennan was an American diplomat, and later a diplomatic scholar through the whole middle and into the end of the 20th century. And unlike any other thinker on international relations that I've ever read, or maybe who ever existed, Kennan was nearly always right. He was a sage, a soothsayer, and for that very same reason, he got squeezed out of the highest circles of power at the end of the Truman administration. He kept saying the right things, the true things, but there was no audience for his careful, thoughtful considerations in Washington. In any case, Kennan gave a series of lectures on American diplomacy from the 1890s through the 1950s that got turned into this book that I'm reading. And Kennan, like Rob and I did a couple of shows ago, recognized that naked violence, that war, was always a bad response to a given situation. At a certain point, it may become the only response, but it's never a good one, and it's in the interests of the human community that once it has begun, all parties should endeavor to end it as soon as possible. In the chapter on the First World War, Kennan outlines briefly the incredibly complicated situation in Europe. Quote, You all remember how war broke out in 1914. The origins of this war were complex in the extreme. I will not try to describe them in detail here. Some were of a long-term nature. The still unsolved problems of the breakup of the old Turkish Empire. The restlessness of subject peoples in the Danubian Basin. The loss of what the French call the Ilan Vital in Austria-Hungary. The relative growth of German power the rivalry between Germany and England. Others were of a short-term nature, the stupidities and timidities of statesmen, the pressures of public opinion, the vagaries of coincidence. It was a tragic, helpless sort of war from the very beginning. Poor old Europe had got herself into a box. The structure of her international life had a weak spot. The shot at Sarajevo struck into that weak spot, and suddenly no one knew how not to go to war." Kennan says, moreover, that if Western diplomats, especially the American ones who had traditionally held themselves aloof from European power politics, had been more focused on the destructiveness of war to the overall situation, to the tremendously prosperous balance of power that had held sway on the continent for nearly a century, rather than the minuscule benefits of a total victory, we might have been able to build an actual League of Nations rather than the one we got, and given ourselves a post-war situation otherwise than the one that resulted. Instead, Kennan writes, quote, Instead, Kennan writes, and he quotes Churchill here at the very beginning, quote, and quote, injuries were wrought to the structure of human society which a century will not efface, unquote. Churchill knew what he was saying when he wrote those words. The injuries were deeper than most people ever dreamed at the time. You could fill in the old trenches. You could plow up the fields of Flanders where the poppies grew. You could rebuild the French towns. Life could begin to look normal again after a few years. 
But there were trenches no one could fill, fields where no poppy would ever grow again, structures no one could ever rebuild. They were in the souls of the men who took part in the war, the survivors. And what can one say of the six million who never came back? World War II seemed really so extensively predetermined. It developed and rolled its course with the relentless logic of the last act of a classical tragedy. And the main elements of that tragic situation, the sickness and impatience of Germany, the weakness of Eastern Europe, the phenomenon of Bolshevism in Russia, and the weirdness and debility in France and England, all these things took their origin so clearly in the period of 1914 to 1920 that it seems to be here, if anywhere, that the real answers should be sought. I do not mean to say that there were not still important things that could have been done in the 20s and the 30s, or perhaps even in the 40s, to avert the worst dangers and to press the stream of events into more hopeful channels. 30 years is a long time in the course of human events. The life of an international community can always be inclined to some extent, like a tree, by persistent pressure in a single direction over a long space of time. But I would submit that a significant narrowing of the choices of the generations from 1920 to 1950 began with the outbreak of violence in 1914, that with the subsequent emergence of a military deadlock and the disappearance of hopes for a compromised peace, this process was greatly advanced, and that by the time the fire of war had finally burned itself out and the Treaty of Versailles had been signed, the area in which Western statesmen, and above all American statesmen, could act to restore genuine health and peace to Western civilization, and to give that civilization strength to withstand the growing challenge from the East, had been grievously and tragically narrowed." Unquote. All of which was, really, a result of choosing what was superficially easy and effective, violence, to resolve the complicated European situation over difficult, slow diplomacy. Violence that locked us into violence for most of the rest of the century. Take a modern example. The U.S. might, might, in some frame, have had an interest in removing Saddam Hussein from power in Iraq. Not because of weapons of mass destruction or wh whatever else, but just because of his past and current actions in the name of maintaining a stable balance of power in the Middle East. There were some diplomatic options there. We could have partnered with the Iranians to bring some pressure to bear. We could have leaned on our intransigent Sunni allies in the region to stop sending him illicit aid. We could have done a lot of things that would have, because we would have been working through diplomacy, done something to reinforce a structure of international norms and the peaceful hashing out of differences between nations. What we did instead was to take the easy route. We used our massive military might to crush his relatively puny armed forces and then turned him over to our local allies for execution. That may have been satisfying to our leaders and cathartic to some extent, but the result since then has been an unending war, the death of hundreds of thousands, and a serious authoritarian turn to our security state here at home. So violence and diplomacy are two of the actions that exist on this spectrum from easy to hard, from destructive to constructive politics. And I think another such action, nestled right up against violence at one end, is cynicism. Political cynicism. As I was sketching this argument out in my head, I'd originally wanted to draw a distinction between cynicism of the powers that be and cynicism among the people governed. But I think now that they're of a piece, and that they're bound up together. Take another really small example here. When I was in the Peace Corps, I lived in an apartment that was carved out of one big open-plan house. There were maybe six other apartments, all of which were empty, except for the one below me, in which lived Trey and Janessa, a married Peace Corps couple from my group. The two of them were worried early on about misplacing their keys, so they gave me a copy, and they gave me more or less responsible free reign of their place when they weren't home or if I needed to borrow something. And I abused that power. 
Not on purpose, but pretty much because I'm absent-minded and messy. One day, I used their oven while they were on a trip. Did what at the time seemed to be a pretty good job cleaning up, borrowed their broom, and then left on a trip of my own. When I got back a week later, they were having a dinner party, so I sat down, and once the guests left, totally to my surprise, Trey started bawling me out. I had not, it turns out, cleaned very well, and I'd forgotten to return their broom. Since they didn't have a key to my place, they'd been broomless in the face of my mess in their kitchen and their upcoming dinner party for a week. Trey laid into me, as he had a right to do, but I ended up taking the wind right out of him. I told him that he was totally correct, that I'd been getting into trouble for exactly the same thoughtless disregard for other people's property with my father since I'd been old enough to get into trouble, that I thought of Trey like a big brother and that I was ashamed of myself, that they were right to take my key and that the only thing I had the right to say was that I would do better. Trey really built up what he was going to say to me and I kind of undercut it so that by the end of the night we were drunk and hugging and nearly crying and I can tell you that since that day I changed the way I operate around other people. But imagine there was one difference in this situation. Imagine that, because I'm okay at reading people, that I just made up everything I told Trey. That I wanted to get him off my case. That I picked up on the way that Trey felt big brotherly towards me, and that I cynically exploited the way that he felt to diffuse his anger. That is not what happened, let me be clear. But if it had been what happened, you can see the effectiveness of that method. As for the destructiveness of it, imagine further that at some point Trey finds out. I brag about it to a friend and he overhears me or some such. Imagine the total implosion of our friendship, the total destruction of any present or future trust. This right here, that thing that we just imagined that again did not happen, is analogous to the cynicism of the powers that be. Not that I was a power over and against Trey, but in the sense, just like a politician, that through one cynical act, I could have ensured that after my initial victory, after diffusing his initial anger, that Trey, in this case the people, would never again take anything I said in anything but a cynical light. Now imagine furthermore, in this hypothetical situation, that Trey then comes and confronts me. And instead of apologizing, instead of trying to double down on the original cynicism, instead of continuing to pretend that I felt bad, I do something else. I point out, because people gossip, all the other times friends of Trey's have taken advantage of him. I even point out all the other times that I've done it. I embellish, I expand, I lie. I create that little seed of doubt. Maybe I'm cynical and manipulative, but so, I would say, is everyone else. And if I'm good enough at my job, maybe for an hour, maybe for a week, maybe forever, I ruin people a little bit for Trey. I change his outlook. I rob him of a little bit of trust. And that's cynicism among the governed, the ability of political actors not just to be cynical, but to foment a parallel cynicism among the people that they interact with. Both, I think, are pretty easy to do, and pretty effective at achieving immediate ends. Both, likewise, tend to destroy the fabric of human relationships, and to make further politics, further constructive interactions between Trey and I, totally impossible. So, finally bringing all this home to the U.S., consider one Richard Milhouse Nixon. Everybody knows about Watergate, but even those of my audience old enough to have lived through it might not remember the timelines. Richard Nixon, not really worried about the election, but very worried about the leaks from his government, especially Daniel Ellsberg having given the Pentagon Papers to Neil Sheehan at the New York Times, decided to bug the Democratic Party headquarters in the Watergate Hotel on the Potomac in Washington, D.C. Nixon's campaign, known as CREEP, the Committee to Re-elect the President, sent a team of Cuban exiles and ex-CIA men into the Watergate, and they planted bugs in the Democratic offices. They were a bunch of screw-ups and hacks, so the bugs didn't work. 
And it was when they went back in to fix their mistakes that they got caught and Watergate began in earnest. What we might not all remember is that the break-in, the arrests, and even the first ties between the burglars and the Nixon campaign were all exposed the summer before Nixon won one of the largest electoral landslides in American history. The reason that the revelations didn't hurt the president before the campaign, and didn't even begin to seriously affect him until years later, is that Nixon had built his entire career on political cynicism. He'd made his name in California politics as a red baiter. That is, he used the McCarthyite hysteria of early Cold War America to impugn all of his Democratic opponents as communists. It didn't matter if they had ties to the Kremlin, if McCarthy had named them, or even if they were particularly liberal. Nixon knew, as that false me I was talking about earlier knew, that the truth didn't have to matter, as long as he also knew that he could play on average American fears of the commies. What's more, by red-baiting over and over, he managed, among his core constituency, to create the belief that anyone who ran against a Republican was basically a communist, and that anybody accused of communism could not then be trusted. He sowed cynicism among the population so that anybody who heard, I am not a communist, understood it, falsely, to be a cynical lie and to mean the opposite. Before the 1972 election, the Nixon campaign did what it could to quietly quash investigations of the Watergate break-in. Once that became impossible, after the election, the administration changed tack. Rather than alleging that a break-in never happened, they denied only that there were ties to higher-ups at the campaign and the White House. More importantly, they began, through surrogates and friendly reporters and whoever else would speak for them, to disseminate the idea that this was politics as usual, that everybody did stuff like this. So that if the Democratic Party got up in arms about it, trying to investigate it, it wasn't that the Democrats were defending the rule of law, it was that the Democrats were cynically exploiting a typical situation of the kind in which they themselves were involved for political gain. The brazenness of that argument can or should almost take your breath away, but the real astounding thing about the Nixon defense is that it worked. That it worked for years. Slate's Slow Burn podcast did an entire episode on the Nixon supporters, his silent majority, that had become so infected with his cynicism defense that they said, word for word, that even a direct tie from Watergate to the White House would not convince them to turn on Nixon. That even if he'd done something technically wrong, he hadn't done anything out of the ordinary. In May of 1973, Gail Sheehy was out on assignment for New York Magazine to find some of Richard Nixon's most unwavering defenders. It was the first day of the Watergate hearings that I installed myself on a bar stool in Terry's Bar in Astoria, Queens. Sheehy went to Terry's bar every day for a week straight. The customers there were blue-collar Nixon voters. They were iron workers, construction workers, elevator repairmen. Sheehy's plan was to watch the Senate hearings alongside them and talk to them about why they loved Nixon. But when the bar owner put the hearings on TV and floated the idea with his regulars, Hey guys, you want to watch that Watergate thing? Their answer was unanimous. Turn it off! It wasn't just that they weren't interested— as far as the barflies at Terry's were concerned, the Senate hearings were just a big show, put on by liberals who wanted to take down the president. Why should anyone reward them by watching? Over the course of her week in Queens, Sheehy got to know the president's people. She found them to be angry, demoralized, and disconcertingly comfortable with the idea of a police state run by Richard Nixon. Terry, the bar owner, told Sheehy that you need some strong man on the top now to start whipping everything into shape. It might scare some people, it doesn't scare me. 
And inasmuch as they've now edited it out of their biographies and the official history of the party, even though they made up for it somewhat once things really turned against the White House, the Republicans who served in the House and the Senate, and especially on the committees assigned to investigate Nixon, they stuck with the president. They stood behind him. They reinforced the cynicism defense in their own words, and they tried to stymie their Democratic counterparts in their investigations. It might be that those Republicans themselves weren't involved in their own skullduggery, or in the colorful Republican term, rat-fucking, but that they heard and believed in the cynicism defense. It may have been that some of them had endorsed their own shenanigans and believed them to be a part of politics. But regardless of where the GOP's true feelings lay, what occurred as a result was a breakdown of law and order that almost took down the republic. Because if you as a politician become truly cynical, then your exercise of power moves to the naked force side of the spectrum. If you and your opponents are really just in a bare struggle for power and only paying lip service to the laws and rules of democracy, then anything you do is justified, and all consensus politics becomes impossible. We got even nearer to this extreme when closer ties between the White House and what went on at Watergate came through in the Oval Office tapes, and Nixon began asserting that as long as the president had done it, it wasn't illegal. A stance that, again, the Republican Party seconded, for a while, and a stance that they're currently seconding towards Donald Trump as, as far as financial conflicts of interest go. If we think of constructive politics as building things up slowly but solidly, institutions, norms, standards of behavior, and of destructive politics rapidly tearing them down, then we can see both why the situation eventually turned around on Nixon and why the moment was so dangerous. It turned around simply because we'd spent so long governing and legislating constructively. There was a decades or centuries-long bank balance to draw on, and even Nixonian cynicism couldn't burn through all of that capital that fast. The danger, then, is what would have happened if we had gone to that bank once more in the summer of 1974, fully two years after Watergate began, and found the account empty, found the Republicans still intransigent, or the Democrats openly ready to begin some rat-fucking of their own. We didn't. Luckily enough for us, but even though we got through that crisis, the question should have been, at the end, how much capital we had left in the account, and whether or not it would be enough the next time around. All of which put us on the road to the present, because three things happened in the U.S. that not only didn't go towards restoring the balance in that account, but which have made it more difficult, even decades on, to begin building it back up again. The first was that Gerald Ford pardoned President Nixon. The only way to heal the wounds of Watergate wasn't, as in Ford's telling, to put it behind us as quickly as possible. It was to have a full accounting, a reckoning, to bring it all to light, both what Nixon had done and Republican congressional collaboration, and then to prosecute the man or the men responsible. Instead, we let Nixon off and gave him a multi-million dollar book deal literally the same day that his pardon came through. The second factor is that that oh-so-American wellspring of political cynicism, conspiracy theorism, went mainstream. It had been big in the early days of the Republic, against Catholics and Masons, and there was some of it around in the McCarthy days, and among the right-wing nuts of the John Birch Society. But after Nixon showed so convincingly that vast government conspiracies could be and were real, suddenly everyone was in on the game. And third, though I'd have to write a thesis to absolutely prove it, I think the right-wing propaganda apparatus, as currently embodied in talk radio, Fox News, and the Breitbart Infowars axis of evil on the internet, is a direct result of the Nixonian cynicism defense. Architects of that system, like Pat Buchanan, came out of Nixon's White House, and its basic strategy was the same as Nixon's, 
to impugn Democrats and defend Republicans at all costs and at all times. Since, as we've seen, that strategy necessitated lying on air all the time, day in and day out, in the same way that a strategy to always impugn Republicans and always praise Democrats would, or would have before the age of Trump. In that situation, the only way for the talk radio hosts and the television personalities, and eventually the people on Fox News, to maintain their credibility in the face of such constant mendacity was to discredit everyone else. To lie so constantly and effectively. To attack other outlets so relentlessly as to convince their viewers that the entire mainstream media establishment was composed of cynical manipulators, while the only reliable information came from the propaganda machine itself. I think that machine was a result of Nixon's presidency. I think that the conspiracy-minded populace that it needed to take root had its base in Watergate. And I think that its success, its terrible, horrifying success up to today, was made possible by Nixon's cynical defense of the scandal and Ford's refusal to bring it to a reckoning. And it all took us to where we are now. Bill Clinton experienced it in some small degree when the baseless Whitewater investigation, spurred on by a base hopped up on right-wing propaganda, lasted the majority of his presidency. He got it in a greater degree when the Republican Party lost its mind and tried to impeach him over Monica Lewinsky. Just to note, that was bad and gross and a million other things, but it was not the high crimes and misdemeanors outlined in the Constitution. And the Republican attempt at impeachment was just the kind of totally naked and totally cynical use of power that we had barely managed to avoid during Watergate. Obama got this most of all. From the very first, without even the barest whiff of credible evidence, fully half the country became convinced that he was lying about his birth and his religion. On the campaign, in 2016, more than half of Republicans and an overwhelming majority of Trump supporters were still saying that Obama was a Kenyan-born Muslim. From the very first moment, to those people, every word Barack Obama said as president was by definition a lie. You can see, too, how that made consensus politics impossible. After just barely passing the Republican-designed and Cato Institute-approved Affordable Care Act into law, Obama was forced into the naked exercise of power for most of the rest of his presidency, acting through executive orders, since the Republicans made the legislature a total non-starter for policy. It is an ever-widening, ever-worsening spiral, when one bald use of power begets another. But as long as one party remained largely, though not entirely uncynical, because this is all, as always, on a spectrum, and remained in power, the ship of state sunk, but sunk slowly. Which brings us to Donald Trump, who from the very first day of his campaign deployed the Nixon defense to full effect. Before we had any idea of the extent to which he was a criminal, he was accusing all of his opponents, whether Democratic or Republican, of criminality, of cynicism, of dishonesty. Anything that he accused of, he was guilty of himself, and that was the brilliance and terribleness of the defense. He managed, during the campaign, to focus so much attention on Hillary Clinton's email server that the Obama administration was afraid to go public with the evidence that the intelligence agencies already had that his campaign was in deep with the Russians for fear that it would look like a cynical deployment of state power on the Democratic side. Trump's strategy was terribly effective, and it continues to be so. The average Joe Nixon supporters' defenses of their president read word for word like the pieces interviewing diehard Trumpists that come out every week from the New York Times and the Washington Post. Everybody lies. Everybody cheats. Everybody steals. And as long as it's my guy doing it, and not the other side's, no amount of wrongdoing is going to make me abandon him. And we've likewise been seeing the outsized negative effects of such a policy since Trump's very first day in office. 
The corruption from all his administration heads hiring private jets to foreign dignitaries paying for rooms and hotels to Jared Kushner leveraging his position to obtain loans and ameliorate his incredible debt load. The nepotism from Ivanka and Jared in the White House through Ben Carson at housing and urban development contracting with his own son to all the little variations that even as they would in other eras be scandals worthy of preservation in middle school history textbooks that they don't even rise to the level of our attention above the other noise. The incompetence, the shuffling of White House staff, the selling off of natural resources under Scott Pruitt's EPA, the destruction of the State Department under Rex Tillerson. Terrifyingly, in the massive expansions of ICE and Customs and Border Patrol, it's not well enough known, but the Department of Homeland Security, under which ICE and CBP operate, has jurisdiction in a 100-mile swathe from any border or airport, which it turns out includes something like 80% of the U.S. population. Because at a border you don't have a Fourth Amendment right against unlawful search and seizure, ICE and Customs and Border Patrol have been using their special authority to stop vehicles and check papers without probable cause, pulling people off the street as if we lived in a fascist police state. Last, and who knows exactly how importantly, you've got the president using his Twitter account as a bully pulpit to change and rechange American foreign and domestic policy minute by minute at the speed at which that very same propaganda apparatus manages to fire him up just as it does its similarly confused and aged base viewership. The bank account, the surplus that we'd built up through the decades or centuries of constructive politics, it nearly ran dry before we turned on Nixon. In the interim, we did little, if anything, to make deposits back into it, and we're living to see what happens when the checks begin to bounce and the account is overdrawn. We are in a terribly precarious situation, and I only see three possible outcomes. The first of those three is a turn towards open tyranny. In part, we're already seeing that, and its enforcement with naked violence in the form of ICE, CBP, and the Department of Homeland Security. We're seeing it in Pennsylvania, where the state Supreme Court threw out the Republican Party's obviously illegally gerrymandered redistricting plan. The party immediately launched a scheme to impeach the Supreme Court justices that had voted against it. It's about as blatant a violation of the principle of separation of powers as you can get, and if it succeeds, I don't know what Pennsylvania will be, but it will not be a democracy anymore. The thing to watch, as this year goes on, is for a strategy similar to the one that Trump deployed on the campaign. If we can even remember back that far now, we should recall that even during the Republican primaries, Trump was alleging that the process was rigged. Once he got to the general, that the process was rigged. That explicitly, he would not accept the result if he lost. We can't know what would have happened if that had come to pass, but the Republican Party has come so far since then, abandoned so much of whatever was left besides its cynicism, that I think there's more than a fair chance that not just Trump, but the entire party will take the same tack on the 2018 midterms. That is, if a Democratic wave were to sweep the House and the Senate elections, that the GOP might just refuse to seat the new legislators, the way that they refused to seat Doug Jones after the Alabama election, until they'd already turned their tax bill into law. At that point, it's anybody's guess, but we're no longer a democracy, even to the limited extent that we are right now. The second outcome, I can see, is a cynical Mexican authoritarianism. I've talked a little bit about this before, but it's worth getting into here. Mexico has been a representative democracy since the 1930s. Until the 2000s, though, it was also a one-party state, and a corporate one, an interesting mix of American-Republican democracy and a fascist-style corporate makeup of society. And the nuttiest thing about it is that except for some hideous killings in 1968, the PRI, the Partido Revolucionario Institucional, it managed to stay on the top of that state with relatively little violence or election rigging or anything else. Now, look, Mexico is a violent place, 
But the violence is pretty much about drugs and crime. It is not about rigging elections. Today, there are two main parties, the PRI and the PAN, and there's another one called Morena, and we're going to see how that goes because uh, they've got elections this year too. And they continue to run an authoritarian state without ever actually having had to eliminate the democratic structure of their politics. How do they manage to do that? Well, it's cynicism. Things might be turning around somewhat now, and I might have a piece coming out about it, but we'll, again, we'll see. But for decades, the average Mexican has at the same time turned out to the polls year after year and felt herself totally divorced from politics, totally impotent to affect it. The Mexican educational system has reinforced this dynamic on purpose by teaching endless civics classes that never quite explain how a citizen interacts with the state. Parties cycle through offices, or different factions of the same party cycle through offices, and who you support might depend on what patronage they give you, a job or a new roof or something else. But politics, that is, people arguing over what to do with the state and how to help the people in it, the average Mexican doesn't really have an experience of politics, or didn't until recently. The parties managed through that patronage to secure votes for one candidate or another, one party or another, but without ever really having a policy proposal, without ever really having to deal with the people. Now, there's a popular youth-oriented independent politician here, one of maybe 19 clean politicians in the whole country, who's educating young people on the subject. And just to illustrate how in the dark we were for so long, he's the first person to ever tell young people in Mexico that they can call their representatives, and that their representatives have to take those calls. He's the only person who's ever told them that they can and should take an interest in politics, in the policies that these politicians are actually implementing, and that they have the power to affect those policies within the system as constitutionally written. Now, how that will turn out is anybody's guess, because the Mexican so-called mafia of power have been quietly ordering the great slumbering mass of this country's voters for nearly a century under the current system, and for another century before that if we're really counting. But here in the U.S., we're headed in the other direction. There are already strains of the Bernie-crap left that resemble their counterparts on the alt-right, folks who don't believe any but their own propaganda and are willing to countenance any action as long as it's their man in charge. If we manage to weather Donald Trump and then in the next election put up another milk-toast Democratic centrist and continue in that pattern, one madman followed by one hollow corporate liberal after another, we could very well find ourselves where Mexico is, where everyone knows that no matter the surface politics of the people who are technically in charge, they're all just enriching themselves and their corporate donors, and that there's nothing you or me can really do about it. If that goes on long enough, and it doesn't have to go on that long to be long enough, then any great popular movement to change the situation is going to go the way of Tlateloco here in Mexico in 68, or Tiananmen Square in 89, or even Occupy Wall Street in the 2010s will be cowed, callous, cynical, apathetic, and living in a country that mostly works while the power elite do what they will, regardless of our technically democratic politics. Our last option, the third option, as I see it, though I'm with Kennan in recognizing that no one can really read the currents of human history, is a second reconstruction. If we do indeed manage a democratic wave in this year's elections, and the Republicans let us have it, and if we manage to keep it going, they were going to need to recognize a few things. First, that all unwritten norms are dead. We don't have to wait like Harry Reid did under Obama for Mitch McConnell to find another one to kill. We acknowledge their death and we break all of them that are left. We break them in a naked exercise of political power to strip the other side of its authority. We destroy the propaganda apparatus poisoning the minds of half of our population with any means available to us. 
we begin impeachments immediately, and we either pack or crack the Supreme Court. Then we legislate all of those dead norms, making them not time-honored unwritten rules, but hard and fast legal statutes. We use federal power to integrate classrooms the way that we failed to do in the 1960s and again in the 70s. We enshrine iron-hard voting rights. We eliminate the Electoral College. We change the way that we district. We grow the House to eliminate disproportionate representation for low-population reactionary states. We institute a national service law that makes sure that parochial, unintegrated communities are forced to develop a cosmopolitan and national consciousness. And maybe most of all, we strip the imperial presidency of its power and put that authority back in the legislature where it belongs. We unleash naked power as swiftly and as broadly as we can. We use it to undo the damage that's been done to us since Nixon's pardon. And we try, as hard as we might, to fill up that bank account by force before beginning to build it through consensus. I think that this third option is the least likely of the three. If the Democratic Party doesn't have the stomach to be running against the Republican tax plan of last December right now, and it is not, it does not have the stomach for anything of consequence, even though I do think that the base is ready. Moreover, I've said that naked force is the worst possible tool for construction, and I think the plan is nearly bound to fail, even if you had a party and a population willing to implement it. I also believe that it is the only option that would get us through the next 20 years with some semblance of the same Republican democracy that we had beforehand. All states, all empires are doomed in the end to die. And as the body politic becomes more corrupt and more sclerotic, more drastic and hideous measures are the only things that will cleanse and enliven it. It may be that the natural life of our system as conceived, one built from the very first on an untenable tension between the God-given equality of all people and the subjection of blacks and women, is coming to its natural end. It may be, too, that like a cancer doctor facing his own surely terminal diagnosis, that we decide that the cure is worse than the disease, and that we've just got to face what comes next. But it seems to me that the death throes of empire are much more terrible than those of even the most important of men. That in our case, while the only cure may be worse than the malady, it may also be that the demise will be worse than never having existed at all. And that our downfall, like the Roman one, in Gibbon's words, will be occasioned by a memorable series of revolutions, which gradually undermine and at length destroy the solid fabric of human greatness. So let's fight, and fight and go down fighting, because I'm not sure that at this point, America as a concept has all that much more to lose. There is no strife, no prejudice, no national conflict in outer space as yet. Its hazards are hostile to us all. Its conquest deserves the best of all mankind, and its opportunity for peaceful cooperation may never come again. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too.